I would like to now welcome uh, Ariel Ramirez to come and read today's scripture. Uh, and after that, I will be back for today's teaching. This week's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche, the famous philosopher and atheist, uh, he was a staunch opponent of Christianity. Uh, he had a lot of problems with Christianity as a religion, but one in particular he notes uh, in one of his novels, and within the novel there's a discourse uh, entitled On Priests. And he wrote a very telling statement about one of the problems that he has with Christianity. And he says this, uh, referring to the priests, he says, they have to sing better songs before I shall believe in their Redeemer. Uh, Charles Marsh, who is a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, uh, he co-authored a book with the great civil rights activist John Perkins in a book called Welcoming Justice. Uh, in the book, he notes how deeply impacted he was by that statement made by Nietzsche. And he went on to say, uh, he went on to give this response. This is Marsh speaking about Nietzsche. He said, That statement has become a credo of my writing life. To make space for Christian honesty and for singing beautiful songs. There is no more beautiful song than that of the love of God poured out for humanity in the redeeming and reconciling gift of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Most of my students who have left the faith have not left because they have read Kant's critique of the ontological and cosmological arguments for the existence of God, but because they have listened to Christians in hope of hearing beautiful songs, but instead heard something thin and shrill. But the church has beautiful songs to sing. Now I want to pose a question to each of us today. What does it mean to sing beautiful songs? Now I think it's clear that both Nietzsche and Marsh are not speaking about literal songs to be sung, but rather the ways in which Christians make known the truths that they proclaim. 
It is the content of one's life and character and actions and perspectives and goals and trajectories in life. It's those that are the songs that we sing. And for Nietzsche, the theological content of a person's literal song means nothing without the beauty of that content being made manifestly beautiful in the lives of those who sing them. Now, the book of Philippians is essentially a reflection on that idea. I mean, what are the songs your life sings? What are the melody and the lyrics that the world hears when they listen to the songs that your life sings? This is the kind of thing that the book of Philippians is attempting to unpack. And our passage here contains what I think is one of the most simple and yet most striking verses in the New Testament about what it means to be a Christian. It contains a melody. It contains a lyric that when sung well, points to the beauty of our Redeemer. It is the verse that my wife has made her life verse, which she had tattooed on herself many years ago, in order that it might be a constant reminder of the songs that we are called to sing. That verse being verse 21. The famous verse, For me, to live is Christ and die is gain. And what I want to do is I want to see this passage, that verse, through the lens of what it means to sing beautiful songs. And so to do that, let's do it by considering three things. Let's consider the lyrics of our songs, the melody of our songs, and the singing of that song. Okay, so the lyrics, the melody, and the singing. First, the lyrics of the song. Uh, the lyrics of the song that our lives sing is they're really fundamentally what we say that we believe. It's truth that we claim. So in this sense, the Christian's song is fundamentally our stated beliefs about God. And though short, this verse is packed with endless and rich theology about what the Christian ought to believe, the stated beliefs that we ought to have. I mean, that verse, to live as Christ and die, in, die as gain, is so theologically dense because it assumes the great theological truth known as the union with Christ. That is, that through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are in some way that we can't fully grasp, unified to Christ, in order that we too might experience the same death and resurrection as Christ. Uh, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. A new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. In Colossians 3, we're told that you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Or as the in the famous words of uh, the famous theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I mean, what does all that mean? It means that if you are a Christian, your quote-unquote old person has died. And as Roman 8, Romans 8 tells us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead brings resurrection life to us 
so that now our life is unified to Christ. You know, friends, that is a, a mystery that is beyond our full comprehension. But Christian, hear these words. You are one with Christ. So to live is Christ, to die is gain, in one sense, is about our union with Christ, which we could talk about endlessly for the rest of our lives in attempting to try and understand that fully. However, this verse is not just a theological statement that's dense and we could spend endless years trying to unpack. Uh, it's not just something for us to reflect on, this you know, seemingly intangible concept, but rather this verse is also the basis for a command that we see later on in verse 27. Verse 27 says that you must then, as a result of being unified to Christ, must conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. In other words, we can live for Christ because we live in Christ. Uh, this paradigm and the way that that's presented there is really classic New Testament, and in particular, Paul's teaching and the way that Paul would understand this theological truth. Specifically, there's a theological principle that's called the indicative imperative paradigm for ethics. All right, let me unpack what that uh, means. So in the New Testament, the reasons for why we ought to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel is dependent on some things that have already been done for us, that have already taken place. Explain to you what I mean. So in all grammar, but uh, for us in this text in particular, in the Greek grammar, which Paul would have written uh, this passage in, there is something that's called the indicative mood. Uh, writers are familiar with this. It's when a statement, there's a statement that's made, uh, when it's in the indicative mood, it refers to what has been done or what is being done. Okay? So it is not requiring anything to be done by us, but rather it's referencing action that's already been done or is being done. It is me saying that a mother takes care of her children because she loves them. It's action that's already happened. It's action that's currently happening. However, not only do we have the indicative mood, but we also have something that's called the imperative mood, which is a command. Right? And we are given imperatives over and over again. We are always being told to do something as you read through scripture. Um, but the imperative mood would be a mother saying to her kids, obey the house rules. Okay? That's the imperative mood. Now, I unpack all of that because the entire New Testament is set up in this indicative, imperative, mood paradigm. Right? There are numerous imperatives or commands throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, but they are almost always preceded by indicatives. Meaning, first you have the indicative, and then you have the imperative. So, God loves you. He cares for you. He pursues you. He sent His Son to die for you. He sent His Spirit to reside in you the indicative. Therefore, treat him as your Lord, the imperative. So God has done certain things, and as a result, we now respond with action. And this is a uniquely Christian motivation for obedience. 
While so many other religions base their um, merits on what they do, meaning they obey in order that God might love them, care for them, bless them, Christianity does stand apart. Christianity is uniquely, I am loved, now as a result I respond, and I commit to honoring God in all areas of my life. So, to live as Christ and die as gain is to say, because we have been loved by Christ, as a result, we will now live for Christ. This is the theology. This is the content of a Christian song. So, our theology, in some sense, in this way, is the lyrics of the songs that our life ought to sing. However, lyrics alone do not make a song. Uh, we also need to consider the melody of the song. Meaning, how do we take these great theological truths and now have it worked out in our lives? You know, in a song, the melody is really what makes the lyrics that much more beautiful. Lyrics in concert with presentation, that's what draws us in. And what I mean is theological statements or theological truths alone usually fail to make one's life song beautiful. Songs only marked by cold truths tend to not draw anyone in. Those truths must shape and mold how we reflect Christ in our lives, in the outworking of how we live. In order for our lyrics and our melody to work in concert with one another, we have to consider how Scripture marries these things together. Specifically, we would categorize this scripturally as faith without works is dead or meaningless. So faith that just shouts hard truths without learning melodious skills produces shrill and thin songs that are unpleasant to the ears. It's that kind of song that Nietzsche felt he was constantly hearing. You know, imagine a child learning to play an instrument. And imagine going to that child's recital. Some of you don't have to imagine it. You know it well of what this looks like, what this means. Within those recitals, the child may hit all the correct notes in some way, but not in proper timing, or they do it without the proper pressure. So the song, as a result, ends up not being all that enjoyable, and sometimes it's just really hard. It's thin. It's shrill. Therefore, as a result, we want to see them develop and cultivate skills of being able to play it well, to create those melodies that are pleasing to the ear. And in the same way, Christians need to develop those skills of melody to take the truth that they say that they they believe and allow it to come through their lives in a way that takes those truths and makes them beautiful. So that our faith, the truths that we believe, and our works, the way that we live our lives, the outworking of those truths, come together in harmony in order that there might be a beautiful song sung. Now how do we accomplish this? specifically. Well, in short, this means that we must live lives from a place of response to God's love toward us, and not from a place of trying to earn God's love. And the reason why is, think about this, 
Apply this to whatever context fits your life so that you can understand it well. Consider the reasons why we do certain things in our lives. You know, think about your spouse or your child or your friend. And think about the difference between how it feels when they do something for you willingly, like clean their room or bring you dinner, compared to the way it feels when you have to ask them 20 times to do something, and as a result, they do it just dragging their feet. Uh, as a parent, I can tell you how loved I feel when my daughters decide to vacuum the living room without being prompted. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, girls. Um, it's very different, though, uh, when they do it because out of they do it out of a heart posture that says, I love you, and I'm glad that I get to serve you in this way, Father. That, by the way, has never actually been said uh, in those words. As opposed to, juxtaposed with, because of our relationship, them saying, ah, I know I have to serve you. There's a huge difference in why one does something out of love or out of obligation. Obviously, the I have to posture is not going to produce a very beautiful song. We don't like that song when we feel like others treat us like we are a chore or some kind of inconvenience. And yet, so often, are we not prone to approach God in this way, and we do the things that God calls us to do, or we try to live lives that reflect biblical principles, but we do it because we feel like we have to, as opposed to doing it out of love and gratitude for our Redeemer. And it's that difference that so often shapes the melody of our songs. You know, last week, we noted the, uh, the very first answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, in other words, as we talked about, is that we were created to reflect and make known the glory of our Creator. And what's interesting about that idea is, especially for us in the West, we spend so much time and money and energy trying to discover our purpose in life, don't we? And to be fair... There are going to be specific ways in which we will engage life. And if we are lucky, that life will be marked by the engagement of our passions and our loves in life. However, we must remember, we need to know that our chief end, our great purpose, is singular for all of us. If you really want to understand to live as Christ, to die as gain, there's one meaning of what that ought to be. It ought to mean that our lives glorify God and we enjoy Him now and forever. And the way that we enjoy Him is to remember the great love that He has shown to us and out of that great love seek to glorify Him in our lives, in our actions, because we love Him. Not because we have to, or not because we're obligated, but because we love Him and in response to the great love that He's shown us. This is incredibly important for understanding how all the theological truths that we might be able to articulate come through our song. That this is our melody. And your call to sing beautiful songs that lift him up in the eyes of the world, this is your great calling in life. That concert of lyrics, of truth, being woven together in concert with melody, how we live it out in our lives. 
Here's the problem, though, is that so often we in life seek not God's glory, but rather we do tend to seek our own. Many pursuits that we commit to in life, they may result in some kind of beauty and glory, but they will almost assuredly always result in a fleeting and a fragile glory. I mean, think about the different aspects of life that we often use in pursuits of this sense of beauty and glory. I mean, we use our career and our relationships and our families and uh, all other types of um, things like the arts, for those in arts, seeking the beauty and glory that comes as a result of creating something. There's so many different things that we pursue. But what we do is we are pursuing, through those things, a glory and a beauty that is uh, fleeting. It is fragile. They always will be. I mean, what I mean by that is if you pursue beauty and glory, uh, for yourself especially, through your career, you need to know one day your career will end and all that you have accumulated in life will be gone. If you seek beauty and glory through relationships, need to remember, every relationship you commit your life to will one day end. The people you love most will die one day. For those who are in the arts and you seek beauty and glory through uh, those arts, just know and just remember that more than likely every note you ever play, every piece of artwork you ever create, every victory that you might win will one day be forgotten and lost. And the kicker is chasing after your own glory, though you will time and time again discover how fleeting it is, uh, you'll also discover how incredibly unsatisfying it is. And the, the irony of it all is that the human condition causes us to still insist on pursuing that fleeting glory that will leave us unsatisfied. Glorying ourselves is like trying to make a meal out of cotton candy. You know, when you take cotton candy and you put it on your tongue, it very quickly vanishes. Was it sweet for the moment? Sure. But for about two seconds. Did it nourish you? No. Of course it leaves you unsatisfied. And so often pursuing our own glory leaves us in the same state, completely unsatisfied. And I draw this out because as a result, I guarantee that when you seek your own glory, your life song will end up being thin and shrill, unpleasant to those who hear it. Even if we hold to these great theological truths, if we aren't orienting who we are and what we are about in our lives, to the end of glorifying God, it's going to produce shrill, thin songs. But here's the alternative. When the melody of our lives is based on our response to God's work and our desire to see Him glorified in our lives, it keeps our songs from coming, it produces a song that's coming from a place of rest and not striving. And because we aren't trying to merit God's favor or achieve our own glory in some way, we do end up with an alignment with the great theological truths that we hold and our great purpose in life, which ought to be this melody that's produced. And when all of that comes together, we then begin to sing beautiful songs. 
I mean, this is what happens when what we believe and how we live come together. We begin to sing beautiful songs that draw others in. So fine, let's take a look at what it means then to sing beautiful songs, the songs that are produced when all this comes together. Um, I've been reading a book called Practicing Theology, uh, and in it there are various contributors who wrestle through what it takes to ensure that our theology uh, is practically lived out in our lives. And uh, Miroslav Volf, a professor of theology at Yale University, says on the subject, this is what he says as he's thinking through how you take theology and live it out practically. He says that the Christian faith is not primarily about human doing. The gospel is not reducible to the bare bones injunction, look at Christ and imitate a wholesome way of life or understand God and act accordingly. The Christian faith is not primarily about human doing, but about human receiving the bare bones, formal injunction to which the gospel can be reduced is receive yourself and your world as a new creation. Really powerful statement. When you think about Christianity, do you think about it as human doing or human receiving? I mean, Wolf is right. Our ability to sing beautiful songs is solely dependent on our understanding of what is being received by us. In fact, the more we understand what we've received is the extent to which our songs to the world will be that much more beautiful. When we realize what God in Christ has done for us, we realize He alone is worthy of our lives. And as a result, our melody is the glory of God in our lives. You know, when we see Christ on the cross, we see his sacrifice. We see our Savior who lays down his life, for, uh, not for his sins, of course, but for our sins. And when we realize that we are unified to him, when we realize that the sinful part of us that put him on the cross also dies with him on the cross, that Christ takes the punishment of that sin that we ought to have received, but instead of receiving the punishment of our sin, we receive forgiveness for that sin. That when we trust in him with our whole lives, we are unified to his perfection so that now our record is his record when God looks upon us. When we see Christ in his resurrection, we see a victor who proves his power over sin, that the sin that took him to the cross and the death that put him in the grave. And when we realize that we are unified to him, we realize that we too shall receive resurrection life. I mean, Wolf is right. Christianity is fundamentally about receiving we receive God's, or we receive Christ's perfection. We receive forgiveness. We receive resurrection life. Christianity is about receiving rather than doing. And when we realize what we have received, doing will follow. And when we stop seeking our, the glory for ourselves, but rather we live lives to glorify God out of this abundance of love and gratitude that we have for him, doing comes very easily to us. As Christ becomes the centerpiece of our lives, this will produce clarity for our whole existence. And for those with ears to hear, 
May God give us grace to produce these beautiful songs. Songs so beautiful that even the Nietzsche's of the world will be compelled by these melodies, be compelled by these songs, that they will hear and they will listen. And it will produce in them great joy at what they hear. And I pray our lyrics find their proper place in our melodies in order that our songs would not be shrill or thin, but instead they would make the glorious name of Jesus to all who hear. Would people see the glory of who he is as a result of the songs that we sing? I pray this for myself. I pray this for you. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great truths that we claim. We thank you uh, that we are unified to Christ. What a mysterious, powerful, endlessly rich thought. And God, we also thank you that you call us to not just cling to those truths as these um, as they uh, may feel intangible, but you also call us to be people that reflect those great truths. I mean, what does it mean for us to live lives uh, that um, reflect the gospel? What does it mean for us to live lives that uh, reveal the fact that we are unified to Christ? Well, it is us seeking not our own glory, but yours. It is us following your commands out of great gratitude and love for you, not because we're seeking love from you, I mean, this is what it means to reveal to the world what it is to be unified to Christ. And I pray that as our lyrics, as our, our true theological truths come together with our melodies, our lives, that we would then sing songs that would make known to the world what they can receive by putting their hope and faith in Jesus. May our songs cause others to be drawn in by your Spirit to the work of Jesus on their behalf. God, I pray that this would be the case. May people come to faith as a result of the songs that our lives sing. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.